0: seated. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, as we come once again to your inerrant, infallible Word that is as powerful as a two-edged sword, we pray that you will do your work in our hearts and our minds, and because we are here and focused on your Word, we will not be the same people who leave as the ones who came in. Thank you Lord for your presence. It is in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Now a uh, winter was coming on and a hunter went out into the forest to to shoot a bear out of which he planned to make himself a warm coat. By and by he saw a bear coming toward him and he raised his gun and took aim. "Wait," said the bear, "why do you want to shoot me?" Well, Because I'm cold, said the hunter. And the bear said, But I'm hungry. So maybe we can reach an agreement. In the end, the hunter was well enveloped with the bear's fur, and the bear had eaten his dinner. There's a moral to this story. We always lose out when we try to compromise with sin. It will consume us in the end. See, compromising our Christian faith and our Christian worldview with the world will ultimately destroy us. Sometimes we begin to feel that biblical principles are tough and rigid, and so we decide to compromise, compromise on certain issues. But the problem is that any time you compromise with evil, evil wins. We live today in a time of extreme turmoil, don't we? Let me give you uh, just one example. Did you know that many public schools today are being transformed before our eyes from places of learning to worldly social experiments? For instance, uh, several school districts in this country have abandoned what they term as gender binary views, and instead they teach and embrace non-binary perspectives on gender identity. And in many of those school districts, a student can choose to identify as one of a plethora of genders without the knowledge of their parents. In fact, it's explicitly stated in many of those school districts. Let me, uh, let me give you just one quote, that uh, students are to be free to express their bi- non-binary gender identities without the knowledge of their parents if the students choose this. Now, uh, some of the identities that they can choose to embrace while at school are uh, not, here's a, there's a long, long list they give, but they also say it's not limited. And uh, here, let me just give you a few select portions of that list. Yes, they can choose to be agender, because according to them, agender people find that they have no inner sense of their gender identity, that is, they have no gender You can be androgynous, a mix of male and female. You can meet demigender, such as partly female, a demigirl, or partly male, a demiboy. You can choose to be gender fluid. In other words, you can have different gender identities at different times. Now, that's very sad for our culture, but... uh, It's even sadder that there are some churches that have chosen to compromise their biblical principles and embrace these changes, along with same-sex marriage in the name of Christian love. This is true of nearly all mainline denominations today, and this is nearly precisely the situation that we find here as we open up the book of Revelation that is going on in Pergamum. So let me... uh, step back a little bit and talk about Pergamum. Pergamum was uh, located about 50 miles north of Smyrna, where we landed last, at the last church that the letter was written to. It was an important religious center. They had, in fact, uh, remarkable places of worship. Worship to Athena, to Asclepius, to Dionysus, which is just another name for Bacchus, the god of drunkenness and debauchery. And then, of course, there was a very, very large temple to Zeus. And and in fact, the worship of the Roman emperor was very big there as well. In fact, this was the first city in the ancient Roman world that built a temple to Caesar and where he was worshipped directly as a god. This was, uh, as you can imagine, a very difficult place for Christians because, of course, they refused to worship anyone but the the triune god. Pergamum was also widely known to house a very large university and a library with over 200,000 volumes, which was actually quite remarkable by ancient standards. In uh, Pergamum, there was this huge altar to Zeus right in the middle of the city on which animals were sacrificed 24 hours a day which produced a constant column of smoke that served, of course, to focus all eyes toward that center worship of Zeus. And in fact, it was the scene from miles and miles and miles away. Now, if you uh, walked a couple of miles outside of the city gates, you would come to the, what was referred to as the Sanctuary of Asclepius, who was the god of healing. And in the sanctuary, people would bathe in the sacred spring, and Asclepius would supposedly appear in a vision and tell them what they needed to do to be healed. In fact, it was a very famous place of medicine, and mingled into their medicine, of course, was all this superstition. Do you know what the emblem or the idol of Asclepius was? It was a snake. If you've ever seen the medical symbol that's used today, even in America, you'll notice that in the middle of the symbol, winding its way around the pole, is a snake. Have you ever wondered why? Well, that is the ancient god Asclepius, the god of healing. In, uh, in the temple, snakes uh, slithered all along on the floor, and in order to be healed, you had to go in there and lie down and Let the snake slither around on top of you. They believed that while you slept on the temple floor, the power of the deity Asclepius crawled over your body and supposedly infused you with his healing power. So now you're getting a picture. When uh, Jesus, uh, through John here, describes Pergamum as the seat of Satan, he probably has in mind several of these aspects of their culture. The emblem and imagery of the Satan, Asclepius, and the worship of Zeus, with all those sacrifices, as well as the worship of Caesar. This was a very satanic place. Yet despite all this, and despite what was often vicious persecution of Christians in Pergamum, as recorded in history, much of the church remained faithful. Faithful. And John, uh, Jesus acknowledges this, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. But there were still some serious issues in the church there. John writes here in verse, beginning in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Let me uh, me see if I can explain some of this and uh, give us a more vivid picture of what uh, Jesus is talking about. In the Old Testament, Balaam was was a Mesopotamian prophet. He wasn't an Israelite prophet. And we have all of this recorded in the book of Numbers. The Israelites were on their wilderness journey and came to the border of of the nation of Moab. The Israelites had just conquered the Ammonites, and the Moabites, of course, were thinking that they were uh, the Israelites' next target. So Balak, the king of Moab, sent messengers to Balaam who was uh, at the time this renowned Mesopotamian prophet. Balak, Balak the king offered him a reward if he would just curse the Israelites for him. So Balaam prayed, and it was the real God who uh, talked to him. And, uh, and uh, the God told Balaam not to curse the Israelites and not to go to the king of Moab. Balaam sent another set, or Balak sent another set of messengers to Balaam, now with a higher reward so that he would curse the Israelites. Again, God said not to curse the Israelites. Except, here was the problem. Balaam in his heart really wanted the reward that King Balak offered, and he also wanted to curse the Israelites. Finally, God tells Balaam to go to King Balak but told them to speak only what uh, he would say. Four times Balaam prayed to God in Moab, and all four times God put words of blessing for the Israelites in his mouth. You remember the story? It had the whole talking donkey thing and all. That's, That's the story. Balak summoned Balaam, and he would refuse to curse them. Balaam only spoke what God wanted him to speak. Now, here's the issue. Later on, Balaam eventually gave Balak information to defeat the Israelites. Balaam knew God hated sexual immorality. He hated adultery and idolatry. So Balaam tipped King Balak to send the Moabite women to the Israelites and seduce them and to lead them to idol worship. And the plan worked. This is what is referred to as the Doctrine of Balaam. And this is, by the way, point one on your outline, which you can find in the middle of your bulletin if you like to keep notes. The Doctrine of Balaam, as John points out to the church of Pergamum, is the teaching that the people of God can live just like the non-Christian. Effectively intermarrying with them. See, There were some people in the church of Pergamum saying it's okay to intermarry to live intimately with and to intermingle intimately with the pagan system of their city. Balaam, when prophesying, was compelled by God to speak the right things. But in his heart, he was with the Moabites and he supported idol worship and he supported sexual immorality. This is parallel, by the way, with the 2 Corinthians 6 that we read. Let me reread some of that. What fellowship has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial? Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But here in Pergamum, there were some people in the church saying, you can be equally yoked. You can be a Christian and worship idols. You can be a Christian and commit fornication with a heathen priest or a priestess in the temple. You can go to the places of debauchery and the orgies and the festivals and the feasts and still come to church, still come and worship and pay homage to Jesus. In the church at Pergamum, there were people just like this. They had the right words in church, but once outside the church, they acted just like the worldly people. And they encouraged others to act that way as well. They'd participate in all kinds of sordid immorality. But they had the right words. Jesus' words here also mention the Nicolaitans. I'll briefly tell you who they are. They began in Ephesus and claimed to have special revelation from God. They prophesied and taught certain aspects of the Word of God, but their personal life, well, that was just a big compromise. They thought themselves to be very practical, to get along well with the rest of society, to fit in with the trendy and the popular, especially in the areas of indulging the flesh. Now, you might be thinking that this is all very interesting. But it doesn't have anything to do with us today, does it? Let me give you a modern-day example. Today, the two big themes of churches is some, many of the modern churches is grace and authenticity, and these are these are terrific things. I've already preached on them, and they're they're wonderful things. But unfortunately, many have so overemphasized them that they have abandoned holiness and ethical living. In many church circles, authenticity has somehow turned into being true to how you feel, rather than genuine authenticity, which is simply being honest. With ourselves and with others, about our failures and our sins. In some church circles today, uh, it would be correct. They would they would tell you that if you feel a certain way, you need to act that way. There are churches today that will tell you that if you feel lust but don't act it out, you're just being a hypocrite. But that's just a twisted definition of hypocrisy. The real meaning of hypocrisy has to do with living out what you believe, not how you feel. And that, by the way, is point two on your outline. To conform my life to what I believe, despite how I feel, isn't hypocrisy, but integrity. Sadly, many modern churches have twisted this and bought into the philosophies of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. They've compromised their ethics with the world. Let me give you a personal story. It wasn't long ago when I was being ordained into the PCUSA and being received into the Presbytery of Greater Atlanta. I was uh, attending my first meeting at the Presbytery, sitting with my elders, when I saw a woman sitting in my pew who looked kind of odd. I kept looking her way because there was just something different about her I just couldn't put my finger on it, but something just seemed odd. Well, that was when one of my elders who kept seeing me uh, looking at her, uh, staring at her, he turned to me and he whispered into my ear that the person I was staring at was an ordained pastor who had a few years back divorced his wife and came out as a transsexual. The presbytery... Celebrated that. They helped pay for this pastor's medical cost to transition. I think this is a picture of modern day compromise with the culture. Don't you think? Just as with Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Let me uh, me give you the opposite side. Let me give you a more positive biblical response. Ted Engstrom uh, tells the story of Coach Cleveland Stroud and the the Bulldogs of Rockdale County High School of Conyers, Georgia, not too far from here. It was their championship season, 21 wins and five losses on their way to the Georgia Boys Basketball Tournament. Then a dramatic come-from-behind victory in the state's finals. But uh, he writes this, but now the new glass trophy case outside the high school gymnasium is bare. Earlier this month, the Georgia High School Association deprived Rockdale County of the championship after school officials said that a player who was, that it was the school officials who reported this, that a player was, who was scholastically ineligible had played 45 seconds in the first of the school's five postseason games. We didn't know he was ineligible at the time. We didn't know it until a few weeks ago. Some people have said we should have kept quiet about it, that it was just 45 seconds and the player wasn't an impact player. But you've got to do what's honest and right and what the rules say. I told my team, and this is the coach writing, I told my, my team that people forget the scores of basketball games, but they don't ever forget what you're made of. That's what John's talking about here. John's solution to the problem, Jesus' solution here of compromising with the world, well, it begins with repentance. You see that here? Realize you've been going down the wrong path and turn toward the right one. Point three on your outline is living in a city that is the seat of Satan is no excuse. Being in an ever-increasing corrupt time is not an excuse for allowing ourselves and our churches to become corrupted. Let me also be clear that in this politically uh, charged age in which we live, compromise with the world is just as much a problem for Democrats as it is for Republicans, of which uh, I am proudly neither. If this morning you are a Republican and you are hearing this message and pointing your fingers at Democrats, you've missed the point. And if you're a Democrat and pointing your finger at Republicans, you too have missed the point. The finger must always be pointed at ourselves. And we must always be asking ourselves, where am I being compromised by the world, by the sins that so attract me? You know, uh, Throughout his administration, Abraham Lincoln was a president under fire, especially during the Civil War years, and uh, although he knew he would make errors in office, he resolved never to compromise his integrity. So strong was his resolve that he once said, I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration that if at the end when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost Every other friend on earth, I have at least one friend left, and that friend shall be down inside of me. That's integrity. See, the biblical message is clear and consistent, and this is point four on your outline. God hates it when we compromise our biblical standards. God says he will fight against them with a sword, the sword of his mouth the judgment of the truth of his word, God will oppose those who compromise. And the remedy, as I said, is to repent and to remember the rewards of faithfully following our Lord. To those who are victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, he says. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I'll explain that in a minute. You see, the problem is that, of, is that corruption is fun, isn't it? Immorality is pleasurable in the immediate, but the long-term and eternal rewards are horrendous, and without repentance, there is eternal judgment. But To those who repent, God promises his hidden manna and a white stone with a new name for the ones who repent. Let me explain the manna first. Manna is, the, of course, biblically the bread of life. And uh, in the Gospel of John, that is Jesus Himself. See, Jesus told us that He is the bread of life. In other words, this is a promise of a deep, loving, and abiding relationship with the living God. That is the reward of hidden manna. True nourishment and satisfaction for our deepest needs and our deepest desires in intimacy with Jesus. And as Jesus put it here, here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which people may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Okay, so maybe, maybe we get the symbolism of Jesus here in the bread of, is, is pretty clear. So what about this white stone with a new name? Let me see if I can explain this. White stone was mined at Pergamum. And it was in fact a commercial product that they sold. They were used as medallions in the Olympics. They were also used as tokens or tickets, if you will, into banquets or feasts or sometimes even used as place cards on the dinner table. I... uh, One scholar writes, could he have mean that this is a ticket ensuring that we could participate in the heavenly banquet with Christ? They were also often given to a man who was freed from slavery as proof that he was made a citizen of that province now. See, all this symbolism really points to one thing, and it's point five on your outline. The white stone speaks of our citizenship in heaven. White stone was also sometimes carried around as a charm. As a charm with the name of your God. This is the assurance that we have that Christ would protect us. The name on, on it, of course, would be that of Jesus. That we belong to him. That heaven is our home. And Jesus is our Lord. And then there's the, a new name. A new identity for you and for me, reminding us to whom we belong. Peter uh, put it this way in the same kind of message in, in 1 Peter chapter 6, verses 9-12. to 12, He said, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you had, I'm sorry, but uh, dear friends, I urge you as a foreigner in exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Peter is talking about the same thing. And this is, by the way, point six on your outline. We must understand we are God's chosen vessel, and we cannot compromise with this world. Booker T. Washington describes meeting an ex-slave from Virginia In his book, Up From Slavery, he writes, I found that this man had made a contract with his master two or three years previous to the Emancipation Proclamation to the effect that the slave was to be permitted to buy himself by paying so much per year for his body, and while he was paying for himself, he was to be permitted to labor where and for whom he pleased. Finding that he could secure better wages in Ohio He went there, and when freedom came, he was still in debt to his master, some $300. Notwithstanding that the Emancipation Proclamation freed him from any obligation to his master, this black man walked the greater portion of the distance back to where his old master lived in Virginia and placed the last dollar with interest in his hands. Then he writes this, in talking to me about this, the man told me that he knew that he did not have to pay his debt, but that he had given his word to his master and his word he had never broken. He felt that he could not enjoy his freedom till he had fulfilled his promise. That's integrity. One final point. The name Pergamum literally means thoroughly married. And Jesus here is, uh, is uh, making a play on the words uh, of the name of Pergamum. See, the church was in serious danger. It was in serious danger of becoming compromised and thoroughly married to the immorality and corruption around them. But right at the end of the book of Revelation, which uh, I promise we'll get to at the end of this series, In Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. See, the church is the bride of Christ. And so the question is who are we thoroughly married to? Are we thoroughly married to compromise with the world, with corruption and immorality or to Christ Jesus whose name is on that white stone let's pray together god of love and mercy we pray we pray today that uh, you will show us where in our hearts where in our lives we have chosen compromise rather than integrity. We have have chosen to be thoroughly married to the passions and the loves and the corruptions that are around us and not thoroughly married to you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you will work in our hearts and in our minds That together, and as individuals, we will have a deeper understanding of those areas to which we have become compromised. Thank you, Lord, that you work through your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we pray that we will be more yielded to your work in our lives. I invite you now to open up your bulletin to the inside back page as we